Dr. Whalen is the author of The Consolation of Rhetoric, a study of John Henry Newman's epistemological thought. He has also published articles and essays on Renaissance poetry, nonfiction prose, and the history and philosophy of liberal arts education. His reviews have appeared in the Intercollegiate Review, the University Bookman, Modern Age, and the Suwannee Review. He's a frequent lecturer, and he addresses topics such as the liberal arts, the Western imagination, the writings of Shakespeare, John Henry Cardinal Newman, T.S. Eliot, and Walker Percy, and this evening, Joseph Pieper. The title of his lecture tonight is Abuse of Language, Abuse of Power, and let's give a nice, warm, authentic welcome to Dr. David Whalen. Thank you. You got it much. Thank you for that too generous introduction. Uh, you, you undersell Authenticum and, uh, and this parish. My, my wife and I are rather seriously envious, I hope not to the sinful point, but envious of you all for having a parish like this. I mean, we're very blessed and we're uh, grateful for the blessings we have, but, but uh, um, we, love, we love this parish. I'm pulling this out because I forgot to turn it off before, and if I don't turn it off, sometimes uh, cell phones interfere with these transmissions, so let me see. This one you have to be careful about, I, I'm told, this one, because the way you turn it off is very, very similar to the way you call the police. <laughs> I'm not joking, that's, that's actually supposed to be true. <clears throat> and speaking of not joking, this is an after-dinner address, right? Full stomachs, glasses of wine. So I, I will try to speak in a low monotone so as to con lead everyone gently into the nap they're going to take anyway. <laughs> um, I modified the title of this a little bit um, to speech and language in an era of malpractice. Joseph Pieper and abuse of language, abuse of power. Uh, I understand we have uh, Q&A lined up for 8 o'clock, so I will jump right in and try not to go on too long. Excuse me. <clears throat> the great prayer, the Sanctus, rings out at every Mass just prior to the canon. The words holy, holy, holy point us toward the unfathomable mystery where briefly this world and the next world come together and we stand before the Lamb, eternally offering himself to the Father. At that moment, the sanctuary is flooded with angels. The saints, too, are all about us as they surround the throne of God and wonder at the mystery of the sacrifice. Martin Mosbach points out that the apocalypse is the New Testament's liturgical book, and so it is that we find in scripture there the sanctus in essential form. There the four figures, ox, man, eagle, lion, all cry unceasingly, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty, whoever was and is and is still to come. It turns out, however, that scripture is a tightly woven basket such that every strand seems to touch every other strand. So the mystical visions in the New Testament have their parallels in the Old. 
Isaiah, too, has a vision of heaven and describes angels, the six-winged seraphim, standing above the throne of God. We are told significantly, and they cried to one another and said, holy, 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 the Lord God of hosts, all the earth is full of his glory. I say significantly because we are accustomed to thinking of this as a prayer offered to God. And so perhaps it is when we utter these words at mass. But note that Isaiah says the angels exclaim these ecstatic words to each other. They cried to one another, he observes. This seems rich with importance. In, in our imaginations, angels tend to be pictured either sentimentally or militarily. Either they, <clears throat> I hope I'm not treading on anybody's favorite image toes, but either angels are, are, are pictured as rather corpulent, floridly dressed creatures who look for all the world like operatic divas guiding children across rickety bridges, uh, uh, bridges I might add that no parent would allow any child to approach. <clears throat> or angels are severe, no-nonsense, austere creatures standing at attention with burning but controlled zeal. That latter image seems more in keeping with the dignity of angels and the curiously military term often used for them, hosts. But even in this image, we tend to think of angels as silent-seeming sentinels. What we often forget in our imaginings is that scripture tends to present them as moving and speaking. Even in heaven, they move and speak, without, of course, descending into cacophony or disorder or self-indulgent enthusiasms, the angels, as we see, actually exclaim in wonder, and they do so to each other. They speak to each other with intensity and energy. Angels, like the saints, are a communion, and they wonder at God, and they give voice to their wonder in common. Now, I mention all this with some diffidence, as I am no biblical scholar, I am no exegete or theologian, but we have some dark business to discuss tonight, some unhappy things to say about the state of our language, our culture, our social and political era. And it seems best to begin with an instant, instance of language at its best, at its most happy and most luminous. We'll come back to this too. But here this evening, we will take up the matter of language, not in some exhaustive philosophy of communication, but as a facet of human nature that is under particular threat or strain in our time. We are accustomed to noting the decay of or the attack on, <clears throat> excuse me, natural human things these days, human sexuality and the family, human life in its beginnings and its endings, universal moral truths, yet, Language, too, is at the very heart of our being human. We are thinking, reasoning beings, and language is that being's currency. A corruption or wound there touches everything about us. Catholic philosopher, as you heard, Catholic philosopher Joseph Pieper, in a short treatise penned in the 1970s, Abuse of Language, Abuse of Power, makes just this point. <clears throat> 
Word and language, in essence, do not constitute a specific or specialized area. They are not a particular field or discipline. No, word and language form the medium that sustains the common existence of the human spirit as such. And so, if the word becomes corrupted, human existence itself will not remain unaffected and untainted. <clears throat> Despite the abstraction of that statement, Pieper's treatise, the center of our talk tonight, is anything but arid philosophical speculation. In fact, grimly enough, the topic presses on us in our daily practical lives in ways far more urgent now, even than at the time when he penned his treatise. Before investigating the causes and nature of the words corruption, as he calls it, what is the word and how does language at heart contribute to our essential humanity? When Pieper says language is the medium that sustains the common existence of the human spirit as such, he means that it maintains us. It props us up. It sustains our thinking, our knowing, our aware selves. That, that part of us that it thinks and is aware <clears throat> is propped up, maintained by language. Without language, our minds themselves would dwindle to a shadow, not disappear, of course, but dwindle remarkably. And moreover, the word common means two essential things. It means ordinary, of course. Language is the ordinary sustaining medium for ourselves. But it also means in common or communal, the thing that allows us to bond with others, to connect with others, to make real or enact the fact that we are social beings. This second mean, <clears throat> meaning proves to be as important as the first. We are individuals, yes, but individuals who by nature bond with others. And language brings that part of our nature into being. Blessed, soon to be saint, John Henry Newman puts it thus, our intercourse with our fellow men goes on not by sight, but by sound, not by eyes, but by ears. Hearing is the social sense, language is the social bond. Language is not then just some tool that we use, rather it is the thing that makes our connection with others possible. In typically concise fashion, Pieper puts the relation between these two meanings squarely before us. First, words convey reality. We speak in order to name <clears throat> and identify something that is real, to identify it for someone, of course. And this points to the second aspect in question, the interpersonal character of human speech. These two facets of, to the word or language then, it's referencing or pointing to reality and it's doing so for someone else, are, are not really separable. In fact, our very act of knowing something, of being able to formulate it into words or language, entails the communicability of the thing we know. This, for an English professor, it's tempting at this point to enter into a digression about writing pedagogy. <coughs> Excuse me for that throat clearing. And, and, and what you say to students who say, well, I know what I mean, I just don't know how to say it. Uh, at which point you say, well, then you don't actually know what you mean. If you, but, but having thus digressed, I will not digress. Uh, words imply that our words imply, the existence of words imply, uh, it implies that our knowledge is tied up in our capacity for communicating that knowledge, 
for bonding with others through the power of words to enable a shared knowledge of the world. In the very attempt to know reality, says Pieper, there is already present the aim of communication. Here we are reminded of that remarkable image of the angels, beholding the ultimate reality. Oh, thank you. Well, no, I, I have some. I should probably make use of it, shouldn't I? Thank you very much. <clears throat> beholding the ultimate reality, these angels see the one who is, as is said to Moses, and they turn to each other, at least metaphorically turn, and pronounce the word holy. They not only bespeak reality, they do so to and for each other. It is not hard to imagine, even in our own broken, stumbling way, the excitement and the animation of those great and terrible beings as they say this to each other. <clears throat> but now, alas, to turn to the abuse or corruption of words and speech. I, I, I really think that most people today of whatever background, whatever belief, of whatever opinion, would likely admit that there appears to be an odd, unmoored quality in the way people now speak and write. And no, I'm not speaking as an English professor being uh, 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 picky about prose style. Almost anything today can be asserted no matter how contrary to plain observation or experience. And as long as the assertion is offered with a straight face, we seem to be required to give it something like serious credence. Or at least that seems to be the expectation. <clears throat> I am not here pointing political fingers in particular in any particular direction. The entire culture seems to be caught up in this wild ride. Long before we came to this pass in our own day, Pieper identified the two forms of corruption of the, that corruption of the word takes. Distortion in the relation of the word to reality and corruption in the matter of communication. Reality is the normative ground for language or the word. He says, to be true means indeed to be determined in speech and thought by what is real. And so to be detached from the norms of reality means indifference. This is, these are his words, indifference with regard to the truth. So when, when does this indifference occur? Well, of course, when a lie is told. There, perhaps, indifference is not even the word, but rather hostility. The truth is precisely what one lying does not want to utter. But Pieper expends considerable effort looking at another, somewhat less direct detachment of the word from reality. Pointing to what is a permanent temptation in a fallen world, this is also the case with lying, he points to Plato's experience with the sophists in ancient Greece, those highly intelligent, highly educated, clever buyers and sellers of pseudo-wisdom, the sophists. These were masters of nuance, double meaning, and honeyed speech. These men were far more wedded to the effect they could have and teach others to have than to any connection to reality. Sadly enough, their very intelligence and subtlety made the corruption all the more effective and insidious. A mellifluous, appealing, sophisticated manipulator is always more dangerous and harmful than a crude and clumsy one. 
in an astute, if rather depressing, observation. Pieper notes, what the world really wants is flattery. And it does not matter how much of it is a lie. But the world at the same time wants the right to disguise so that the fact of being lied to can be easily ignored. The sophist smoothly lies, bends the truth, or even tells the truth by the way, but in each case has corrupted the word because reality is not the point of his utterance. Instead, he wants to create an effect, wants to impress, wow, or amaze. Reality is not the point even if he does happen to tell the truth. The end is getting something from you, manipulating your wishes, desires, moods, and leanings in order to achieve something for himself. In a powerful image, Pieper says, the word under these conditions is perverted and debased to become a catalyst, a drug as it were, and is as such administered. Pieper is so engaged, perhaps enraged, with his subject that he does not much take up the matter of legitimate, faithful, non-sophistic artistry and persuasion. He speaks almost as if any attention to verbal artistry or all wishes to move with words stray into what he calls flattery or corruption of language by subjugating reality to ulterior motives. And that's what he means by flattery. He's using a term often used in translations of Plato's dialogues. Uh, when they talk about what the sophist is up to, they usually use the word flattery. And, and you can tell that what Pieper means by flattery is something much more robust, much more broad than just the kind of unctuous, you know, golly, you look nice today. You know, it, 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 he's, he's talking about, again, subjugating language to, uh, uh, and pushing reality aside and instead subjugating language to ulterior motives. But much could be said on this topic of is there a legitimate place for verbal artistry and for persuasion? Plato, Aristotle, Cicero, and many others who write about the dangers of sophistical ulterior motives do speak as well of mellifluous and persuasive speech that, for all its designs to move an audience, nevertheless does not cross over into flattery, sophistry, or a corruption. The distinctions can be fine ones, and the subject is a hotly debated one, but for now it is enough to say, I think, that we all very likely have had experience of verbal artistry that was intentionally delightful or even eloquently persuasive speech that was quite innocent, that remained very far from any kind of abuse <clears throat> of language. The detachment of language from its moorings in reality is but one facet of the corruption of the word. Of course, it is gra grave and even dangerous, but it is accompanied by another facet of this elemental corruption to which Pieper devotes considerable attention. As we saw, language is oriented to reality, but built into that is its inescapable twin communication, the act of signifying that reality for another. We have already touched on the element of corruption in seeking to manipulate the other through the artful and nuanced use of language. This is not just a failure in itself or a lamentable lapse in someone's moral character, though it certainly is that. It ripples outward in strangely consequential ways that have ultimately social and even political effects. Consider this, this is Pieper, 
Whoever speaks to another person, not simply, we presume, in spontaneous conversation, but using well-considered words, and whoever, in so doing, is explicitly not committed to the truth. Whoever, in other words, is in this guided by something other than the truth, such a person, from that moment on, no longer considers the other as a partner, as equal. You might say that communication as such has ended and the administering of a drug has commenced. Pieper here focuses on the communicative nature of language and what kind of corruption sets in when truth is not behind the utterance. He is interested not only in the falsity of a lie, but in the subversion of speech as a tool for manipulation, manipulation in service to the speaker's advantage. But what is most revealing is this matter of demotion of the other person to something not quite equal, something to be, uh, something denied or removed from the full status of a fellow person. The other has become, quote, an object to be manipulated, possibly to be dominated, to be handled and controlled. He later says that such corrupted language becomes a tool for things for which the word dominate is too gentle. Terms like tyranny or despotism should be used instead. It is worth noting that Pieper knows whereof he speaks. As a young man in pre-war Germany, he had direct experience of the corrosive use of language for manipulative purposes, and he witnessed the political and social consequences of a debased and perverted form of non-communication. He even introduces the term propaganda to describe the social manifestation of corrupted language. Again, what is alarming in all this is not just the disrespect for the truth. I mean, that's bad enough. Rather, in declining to communicate and instead opt to maneuver, flatter, control, and dominate the listener or listeners, a poisonous power play is in motion. And the ultimate consequences of such things we all know well. If an entire society becomes largely habituated to the corrupt use of language, it becomes prey to despotism and tyranny. Indeed, implied in Pieper's analysis is the terrifying thought that such a society, in fact, craves, desires, wants to be manipulated, is complicit in the establishment of tyranny. It has long since agreed to set aside the truth and instead opt for having its vanities and wishful thinking gratified. And the ultimate power play is to do just this on the grandest possible scale. Thus, the demotion involved in speaking not to an equal, but to an object to control is not just a wound to somebody's human dignity. It can reverberate outward into the social fabric of our common life together and set a tone that, in time, imperils all our dignities. Deracinated language, the word wrenched from its roots in the truth or th of things or reality, fails to fulfill its given purpose in communication. Rather than linking people or being the medium of a bond, it becomes the medium for what people calls bondage instead. Politics is the obvious reference here, but abuse of language, abuse of power, takes up an equally despotic, though not necessarily political, kind of bondage entailed in corrupted language. It is introduced through the vehicle again of flattery, 
Pieper wonders aloud whether our own day's flood of technologically delivered advertising, commercial enticements, political appeals, and the like do not constitute in quantity and quality a kind of weaponized flattery. That's my term, not his, but that's essentially what he's thinking. To be sure, Pieper expresses no reservations about commercial activity itself, nor does he disdain making one's goods and services known to others. As his fears of despotism show, Pieper is very far from some kind of statist advocate for controlled economies. What concerns Pieper is the sophistication and nuance, the applied deep knowledge of psychology used in maneuvering through the labyrinthine ways of our minds so as to create effects and move our fancies and desires, all, all the while actually saying very little. Think, think here of, and maybe these are cheap shots, but think here of slow motion close-ups of cola flowing into a glass, or a dog catching, in slow motion again, it has to be slow motion, a dog catching a frisbee while the narrator commends a certain brand of laxative. Okay, this is, this is Peeper now, that wasn't. Uh, th these, these ubiquitous commercials possess the power to influence human attitudes as they propagate a dream world, primarily by glorifying human weaknesses. Not, this is Pieper, not that we should see the devil in every corner. We may indeed deny any serious threat in a kind of flattery that emphasizes our obvious sophistication, acknowledges us as connoisseurs, as being with it and youthful, this is all Pieper, and whatever else, just so we buy this brand of cigarettes or that aftershave or this specific whiskey. Still, it can hardly be denied that our language through all this indeed progressively loses its character as communication as it more and more tries to influence while saying less and less anything. It's striking how little we now, we I think, even expect or hope language to communicate in such matters. We are resigned to it, creating a mood or suggesting an association not based on reality but wishful thinking or amusing without making us aware of anything other than our pleasure. The one common method for such appeals is flattery directed toward our appetites, of course, but also, as Pieper mentioned, our vices or weaknesses. We are, we are supplied an endless stream of, and this is Pieper, sex, sensuality, vanity, nosiness, and sentimentalism. There is also cruelty and indeed schadenfreude, the vicious enjoyment of others' misfortune. There is the obsession with slander, the frenzy to destroy, the readiness to accept radical answers, to go for the final solution. All these weaknesses need flattery, yet not just any flattery, no, there has to be credibility. There, has to be, there have to be convincing reasons in Hegel's words, in other words, an artful presentation of the flattery. Perhaps there is little harm in the occasional bit of flattery. As Pieper notes, we should not see the devil behind every corner. When we live in a media-driven age, however, and our attention, our attention is the object of competition, it is not surprising that sensationalism, sentimentality, shock and awe, and pleasant insinuations about ourselves should be all around us all the time. Nothing captures our attention. Um, uh, like so much as something, anything outrageous. 
Likewise, we all very much desire social approval, and so we are deeply attuned to what is in or cool or fashionable. The flood of sentimentality is its own form of flattery as our current experience with obnoxious and vulgar virtue signaling is making all the more plain. I, I feel so good about myself and I win such social kudos when I hold a press conference and announce that I love everyone, support the marginalized and voiceless, and think that everyone should chart their own paths, determine their own identities, and repudiate haters. You laugh, but that's the world we live in. When your neighbor tells you how nice your lawn looks, there may be a bit of harmless flattery in there somewhere. But it seems to be a different order of thing entirely when we swim in a sea of you've earned it, buy this or that. Be the man you know you are, wear this. If you are a nice person, you'll vote for me. Watch my program and see all the amazing, horrible scandals and super sexy things you could never even imagine. Peeper's prescience here is astonishing. Though writing in the 1970s, the litany of weaknesses or appetites he cites could have been taken from this morning's internet. Newspapers, television, radio, and movies certainly provided him uh, with plenty enough instances of the phenomenon he describes. But where communication is drowned in unmoored appeals to everything from wishful thinking to simple visual fascination, I think characterizes our age even more. But there is more than a hint of insight in Peeper as to the trajectory of all this in his analysis of how these things work and the intensity with which they can be deployed. That intensity is noted particularly in its technological manifestation. I'm confident in saying that Peeper is no what you might call a technological determinist, that is someone who thinks that as your tools go, so go you. Um, that is, he's not one of those who would argue that we are so shaped by technology that we have really no choice but to live the kind of life and have the kind of souls and characters that our machines permit. You know, you know what I mean. If you use power tools, you will be lazy. If you watch television, your imagination will dry up. If you sew quilts with a machine instead of with neighbors, your community will implode. Now, I, I think there's some force and truth in all of those things. But Peeper is no anti-machine Luddite crying halt at technology and urging everyone to buy suspenders and learn to drive buggies. Yet, the weaponization of flattery or corruption of communication is turbocharged by the ubiquity, artfulness, and intensity of our technological media, and Peeper could see this already well on its way. First, the ease with which we surround ourselves with pleasing distractions is historically unparalleled. Never has it been so easy to be so disconnected from reality. Second, the intensity, the vivid felt immediacy of the artificial experiences that we surround ourselves with beggars description. In a way, reality can't compete with the intensity of the unreal world that we have made for ourselves. And third, the ubiquity of technologically mediated messaging from any and all those who would influence us for their own benefit. There really has never been anything quite like it, not to this degree. In Peeper's terms, it is entirely possible that the true and authentic reality is being drowned out by the countless 
superficial information bits noisily and breathlessly presented in propaganda fashion. The place of authentic reality is taken over by a fictitious reality. My perception is indeed still directed toward an object, but now it is a pseudo-reality, deceptively appearing as real, so much so that it becomes almost impossible anymore to discern the truth." End quote. In speaking of Plato and his lifelong struggle against the sophists and sophistry, Peter Men Pieper mentioned the perennial nature of the temptation to abuse language, to co-opt what is rooted in reality and communication in favor of manipulative, flattering self-seeking is no new thing. Neither are the social and political consequences of a corrupted language. The human susceptibility to propaganda and despotism seem as ineradicable as any other consequence of our moral fall. And Pieper displays special interest in such vulnerabilities across many of his books. We have seen here how the corruption of language, excuse me, in the corruption of language, he finds the humanity of another person diminished in a subtle power play substituted for what should be inequality. This writ large provides the basis in language for creating and perpetuating tyrannies. In light of this perpetual temptation or danger, Pieper also highlights a partial corrective, a partial, a particular social institution dedicated to a relentless grounding in reality or the perpetual pursuit of the truth, and that is the academy or institutions of higher learning. Now it may seem odd to suggest that an essential check on our tendency to lapse into a despotic society is healthy higher education. Most people today think of post-secondary education as either a very expensive form of job uh, preparation. Uh, the question, what are you majoring is, is virtually the same as the question, what do you want to do for a living in our world? Or else higher education is a kind of benign, if expensive, holding tank where people go to finish growing up. Yet, just as language is oriented to the truth of real things, so too is, or at least ought to be, the academy dedicated as it is to the pursuit of truth, tied up in an intimate, supportive role as regards language itself. Obviously, this includes the teaching function of the academy. Genuine, not corrupted communication is the indispensable means of sharing truths, circling around difficult to describe but intuited realities of helping others to see what we may see. The academy is a precinct where language is supposed to thrive in about as pure a condition as it is capable of being in a fallen world. It renders real communication recognizable and even habitual for members of society who have been exposed to it or to its leavening influence. In this way, it acts as a check, again, not infallible and not by itself sufficient, but an important check on a culture's tendency to slide into the allures of the, so the soft allures of the pleasing lie. This habituation to the genuine use of language is more important to Pieper as a check on despotism than the kinds of things that academics today, alas, tend to pride themselves usually falsely upon. That is, uh, being political watchdogs, engaging in social activism, indoctrination of the young into packaged belief systems as a condition of being considered enlightened or elite. As we will see, these are all symptoms of a despotism that has come into the academy to roost. But in principle, 
Pieper considers this other thing, genuinely practiced language, as the chief restraint on our tendency toward despotism, uh, towards tyranny. An academy means, this is Pieper, that in the midst of society, there is expressly reserved an area of truth, a sheltered space for the autonomous study of reality, where it is possible, without restrictions, to examine, investigate, discuss, and express what is true about anything. A space then explicitly protected against all potential special interests and invading influences, where hidden agendas have no place, be they collective or private, political, economic, or ideological. Clearly, he says, this is indeed a matter of freedom, not the whole of freedom to be sure, yet an essential and indispensable dimension of freedom. Now perhaps, perhaps this sounds to you like a somewhat conventional description of what is usually called academic freedom, or perhaps it just sounds as if a professor is claiming some special privilege or status. But remember, the entire passage is rooted or grounded in the idea of the truth being at the bottom of all this. Modern descriptions of academic freedom tend not to be rooted in truth at all, but rooted in the wishes or will of the person in question. One can teach what one wants. One can study what one wants. Pieper, however, takes for granted that it is the truth that is wanted. And while there are often disagreements as to the lineaments of truth, it is the common goal of truth that binds those in the academy together, not some social compact where I agree to leave your folly alone if you agree to leave me to mine. Also, as we have seen, the Freedom Peeper notes is not confined to the academy, but radiates to a significant degree into the wider society where it counters, at least in part, corruptions of language. <sighs> Obviously, the irony in all this is that Nuance, sophistication, and subtle and covert manipulations of language are especially and sadly within reach of the kinds of minds and expertise situated, situated inside academies. And thus defense or protection from corrupted language is particularly important in the academy. This is Pieper. Opposition is required, for instance, against every partisan simplification, every ideological agitation, every blind emotionality, against seduction through well-turned yet empty slogans, against autocratic terminology with no room for dialogue, against personal insult as an element of style, all the more despicable, the more sophisticated it is, against the language of evasive appeasement and false assurance, and not least against the jargon of revolution, against categorical conformism and categorical nonconformism. Pieper concludes this ringing litany with, do we have to go on? Once again, Pieper's prescience is astonishing. Yes, by the time he wrote this book, the Academy had begun to show its own despotic tendencies. In the late 70s, for instance, in my own experience, a major state university shut down its stellar great books program because its professors had the audacity to assert that truth was the object of higher learning. So you see the dictatorship of relativism uh, uh, was already firmly established in Pieper's day precisely where the liberty to affirm and pursue truth was supposed to be most sacrosanct. Nevertheless, in the passage just quoted, Pieper seems to be describing the plague of ills that are now all but universal in higher education, ills that make the academy one of the most potent forces working against human freedom, 
genuine communication, and directedness toward truth. The academy has become a training ground in the narrowest of ideological armies. While jealously clutching the traditional privileges and esteem accorded to the disinterested pursuit of truth, academics are supposed to be elites, they're supposed to be expert, authoritative, and honored for their intelligence and high learning. They now, at the same time, advance aggressive theories and accounts of history, of human nature, of the sexes, of economics, of social and political existence, all of which abandon the intellectual virtues that earn credibility or respect. These theories and accounts, one, are the opposite of disinterested but are rather tendentious exercises in confirmation bias. Two, they are cemented in jargon designed to signal membership in approved elite opinion and rebuff inquiry or challenge. Three, invite or provoke intense emotional investment. Four, simplify the complicated and complicate the simple, all for the sake of reinforcing a position or destabilizing an unfavored position. Five, sim appeal simultaneously and paradoxically to revolutionary and autocratic or controlling impulses at the same time. Do you, do you remember? Do you remember in the heyday of communist regimes how every autocratic imposition of power was done in defense of the revolution? That's the paradox. It's the same paradox. I'm going to impose by raw power and authority this in order to protect the revolution. This is what we have now on campuses when institutions happily use their authority to silence unfashionable thought. If I may echo Pieper, do we have to go on? Pieper clearly knew where the academy was headed and wrote in dire warning about its deepening failure to perform its essential functions and serve thereby its social function of purifying language and retarding tyranny and despotism. We now have an academic culture that invites tyranny and regards language as nothing, nothing other than a tool for manipulating others. In Pieper's terms, the sophists have taken over Plato's academy. Concise and compact as abuse of language, abuse of power is, Pieper clearly intent, by the way, I did warn you this was going to be dark. This, this was not going to be a happy clappy talk. Okay, so, so. Uh, he clearly intends to sound an alarm about a profound and culturally pervasive disorder. As observed, language is not just expressive of our deepest nature as rational thinking beings, but it itself, uh, it is itself what philosophers call epistemic. That is, it's part of the mechanism or process of our knowing and of our thinking. Necessarily, then, anything essentially corrupting of language is going to touch everything we do and everything we are. It will affect our thinking, our ability to discern reality, our relationships, our social structures and interactions, our economies, and our politics. Pieper does not set out to describe or even name all the consequences of a corrupted language, nor even all of its causes. What I would like to do in the remaining few minutes is to draw out some additional but related features of our modern language habits and assumptions that likewise militate against truth and communion. The moral and socio-political effects of language occupy most of his think Pieper's thinking, but as noted, he provides at least an outline the relation of language to our ability to think or recognize what is real. If language moors us to reality and provides the basis of our bonds to and with other people, 
then clearly a consequence of attenuated or unmoored language is both a comparative loss of reality and relative isolation. Of course, I'm speaking of matters of degree. Even that techno-isolated soul absorbed in the pseudo-reality of a video game has to reach into the real world occasionally and grab a peanut butter sandwich. Yet I think it is fair to say, maybe even something of a commonplace, that ours is, that ours is a world of epidemic isolation, separation, sealed off, lonely experience. Never have people been so connected and in touch with each other, but paradoxically, never has this connectedness been more unsatisfying and even illusory. Much, maybe even most of this has to do with the technological mediation of our connections, connections that have been found to isolate more than unify. But language itself contributes to this sense of isolation because we have, almost without being aware of it, lost our confidence in the ability of language to forge genuine connections. We are cynics when it comes to the potency of language. That is, we, you and I, are so hardened, so wary, so self-protective, so habituated to people always using language with highly ulterior motives that we no longer think of it as forging bonds with other people so much as forging manacles to other people's agendas. When we lose confidence in language, social bonds dissolve. Recall Newman's observation that hearing is the social sense and language is the social bond. When we are not confident that the glue or the rope we are using to bind things together is very strong, we refrain, of course, in putting much weight on those things. So too with human relationships formed, forged through language. As our faith in language weakens, we place less and less weight on the relationships founded upon it. And the result is an ever-increasing isolation, interior solitude, not of a spiritually healthy sort, and in extreme cases, even solipsistic imprisonment. It's interesting and instructive, too, to explore the territory left to language in its diminished state. True, Pieper has done much here by way of describing the moral decay entailed in flattery. He even goes to some lengths to explain that the term is not quite satisfactory, for it softens and gentles the perversion of language actually underway. He says, something is lost when translations only speak of cajoling, wheedling, and flattery. Left out, he says, is the element of menace. But there are other effects of our diminished language as well. For one thing, shorn of its humane communion-building function, language is reduced to something more impersonal, something mechanical, something that uh, I describe as data transfer. Rather than be speaking reality to each other, we, we send our mental content. We lob meaning missiles or packets of information at each other. We remain safely behind, having sent our content, and we wait to see what the effect of all this is. It is difficult to emphasize enough how strangely different this modern notion of what happens when we communicate is as compared to the great Western tradition of language speaking and writing. As Pieper more than implies, that tradition holds that speaking, and by extension writing, is, has the character of an act, a deed that achieves or is ordered to communion between speaker and auditor, rather than a, a transmission mechanism, rather than a, a mechanism for transmitting thought. Now that may seem like a distinction without a difference, and in a way it is, 
for clearly speaking and writing communicate thought. But the differences in emphasis or in what is most commonly assumed to be underway in speaking or writing. Traditionally, the matter of communication or language was approached in a way that was, if I can say this, can say this strangely sacramental. By sacramental, I mean that speaking and writing was seen as a positive act that accomplished a concrete union between speaker and hearer. One was not just tossing notions into the air and seeing whether they stick. One spoke not just one's thoughts, ideas, etc., but in a sense, one spoke oneself into the other. The speaker did not just send meaning, he or she was sent along with the utterance in a way that rendered the act of communication ineradicably humane. Man was implicated personally in acts of speech. This is analogous to the much more mysterious and terrible speaking underway in the Trinity itself, whereby it is not just mind that is spoken, but a person. The theological implications or relations involved in this approach to language are above my pay grade and are better left to theologians who would know what they were talking about, we hope. But for our purposes here, the Western tradition regards language as achieving what John Henry Newman called conscious communion. That's in the dream of Gerontius. You can see this in etymology where words like conversation literally mean the same thing as dance turning with someone. Like a dance, speech is a mutual movement that achieves a unity. This perhaps unusual way of thinking about speech is closely related to what spiritual writers note concerning the nature of prayer. The act of speaking to, I mean, put it this way, look, it's quite obvious. The act of speaking to God is not data transfer. God does not need our information. The point is performing or enacting a unity. Oddly enough, God does not even need our praise, though it is just and proper for us to offer it. Instead, and perhaps mysteriously, God thirsts for communion with souls. And the history and practice of the church tells us that an early step in this communion is speech between God and the soul. Now, the danger in describing this older conception of language and communication is that a risk sounds pretty sentimental or fanciful to modern ears. To describe speech as an act that includes or entails in a certain sense the being of the speaker, such that not just meaning but being is communicated and thereby a kind of communion achieved, approaches the limits of our imagination as to the capabilities and qualities of language. But rightly or wrongly, these ideas do seem to inhere in the older traditional notions of language and speech. Even the very word person, for instance, points etymologically to the link between speech and communion, between speaker and hearer. The word stems from the ancient term for the mask worn by dramatists in classical theater. The masks had a little megaphone built into the mouth area so as to project the voice, and the faces were designed to indicate the condition or the state of being of the character. So our very word person then embodies the idea that speech, language, and communion with hearers is entailed in being human. I'm convinced that one of the reasons older texts, quote unquote, sound so strange to modern ears, even when those texts are given in modern translations, 
is that the author's idea of what they were doing in their writing or speaking was this older, more richly humane idea, and not the contemporary, rather impersonal one for which technological metaphors like data transfer seem best suited. The fathers of the church, for instance, do not just say different things as compared to modern theologians. They sound as if they're up to something very different in, in, very, in the very act of their saying, their thinking, their preaching. Far from sentimental, they sound urgently immediate, personally present in their thought. We speak and write as if once the thought is uttered, it is just out there on its own, drifting in a sea of potential listeners. The church fathers write as if they are in a way out there along with their utterances. Much of this sense of speech and language is, of course, now lost. The history of its eclipse includes the contemporary corruptions Pieper explores, but goes back several centuries to include other movements and developments in Western culture as well. Happily for you, we don't have time for them to talk about that tonight, although in the Q&A, if you want to pursue that, I'll, I'll be happy to. While we have already noted several features of the, this eclipse of language, an account of that phenomenon, is, as I say, is not feasible here. In the end, however, I think it is safe to say that in our day, the conventional conception of and use of language is a thin, pale version of what is really one of the glories of being human. Now, this observation may have the ring of inevitability about it. Here we are, a few assorted souls tossed on a sea of historically and culturally driven conditions over which we have no control. The best we can do then is recognize the conditions, shrug our shoulders and float knowingly upon them. There is some truth to this, I think. As long as, as long as we are talking about so massive a phenomenon as culture. But recall that almost all of this discussion this evening has addressed things very much within the command of individuals making choices, people acquiring habits, and persons becoming aware of certain phenomena. The very word I used earlier, eclipse, suggests that the thing once seen is still there. It is just not observed at the moment. And for that matter, it does not take long, once we learn to look, before we see all kinds of language use, even now, that is redolent of these older concepts and comparatively free of the corruptions that Pieper discusses. For instance, I mentioned the idea behind prayer, in which we are not simply, simply sending God our information, but enacting a unity. We find similar potency implied in the act of taking an oath or a vow. These utterances have the character of a deed, an act, the nature of which binds or is supposed to bind even so unfathomable a thing as the future. True, true, I concede the idea of a vow as sacrosanct has diminished dramatically in our time. But there is still some recognition of the solemnity and weight that attaches or should attach to a vow. Likewise, the entire world of liturgy and sacrament is soaked in the idea that, bingo, in the, there you go, so, is soaked in the idea that words are efficacious. But here I refer not just to the form of words used in confecting a sacrament, the words of consecration, say, but to the whole of liturgical speaking and language. 
To say liturgical prayers is to perform or enact or do something, not just to shoot meanings around a room. The word liturgy itself, for instance, includes the root erg, ergon, found in energy, meaning work, a doing. Once we tap into the robust idea of a liturgy as an act or a deed and not just an expression of feelings or wishes or what have you, something of the potency of language is brought back to us. Another cultural remnant is found in names. We still have some sense that a name or to utter a name means more or is to do more, at least potentially, than just signify another person. The care the parents take when selecting a name for a child, the reverent way that lovers say or utter the name of the beloved, or the way people in consecrated life take on a new name, all suggest something of the significance that language and speaking used to have more generally. These vestiges of older, more traditional ideas about human speech and language argue that avenues of recovery or at least partial recovery, may exist. Again, much of what we have discussed is wrapped up in human choices and things about which we can create or modify habits, not just faceless, irresistible cultural movements. There may be a few expedients we can employ to reinvigorate this more vital and human notion of language such that it is used, not abused, and perhaps may even contribute to a social environment alien to tyranny. For one thing, and many have observed this for extraordinarily various reasons, we can elect to back away from screens or technologies that dominate our lives. As mentioned earlier, our technology multiplies. It has a, a, a multiplying effect or amplifies the effect of language divorced from reality and prone to exploitation. Obviously, the empty gabbling encouraged by many forms of social media is to be shunned as are most forms of social media in themselves. I expect most of this is so apparent it needs little argument. But if digital fasting can be so good for us mentally, emotionally, and even physically, it would be hard to imagine it not being a similar help with, our, with, with respect to our language habits and associations. Another means of restoration might be greater attention to prayer. Not only is prayer to be commended for its own sake and efficacy, but it can help habituate us to language still more endowed with its traditional potency. We would need to reorient ourselves, perhaps, a bit in our thinking about prayer. First, because I fear even there we are prone to considering it just message sending. But that reorientation ought to be possible and could well help nudge our assumption assumptions about language in a more humane direction. Another and perhaps wildly counterintuitive expedient could be a recovery of silence. Silence is a large and difficult subject in its own right, but it seems evident that language has been cheapened and rendered insignificant in its modern conception. A healthy place for silence in a culture, just as a healthy place of silence in ordinary human lives, helps underscore the meaning and potency of human speech. Needless to say, we are allergic to silence now, and incessant disposable language or speaking characterizes our world. The more noise we make, the less we seem to say. 
and on both purely natural as well as supernatural levels, it seems a robust habit of silence can infuse our speaking with some slight sense of the even frighteningly profound activity underway when we communicate. Greater silence in our churches, in our homes, perhaps especially when we pray, at regular and richly anticipated intervals, such reintroductions of blessed silence could do much to restore the potency of speech and the intensity of the communion it's supposed to foster. Clearly, these few avenues of reinvigorating language do not constitute a program or a recipe, but in the main, the road to better use rather than abuse of language, as well as a defense against the manipulations of the despot or the depredations of the academy can be found in a reversal of those things that have so deeply undermined our greatest faculty, reason, and its enactment speech. Finally, I trust it is not simply a pious reflection to say that should we despair of the repair of language, we perhaps could again think of the angels. These are fierce, ardent creatures, raw, immediate intelligences, agog at God, who utter the word, who utter the reality, holy, with fervor and wonder. Even while each angel remains radically distinct and a, a radically distinct and unique being, they all turn to each other and speak themselves into a willing communion of astonished lovers of God. Holy, 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 they say to each other in whatever mysterious ecstatic way of speaking that they have. But in so saying, they bespeak reality with a purity inspiring to imagine. With that image before us, halting, fallen, foolish and frail as we are, nevertheless, we cannot help but be drawn toward the vision they behold in the pure, potent, unifying model of utterance that it inspires. Thank you. <laughs>